And um, well, this morning uh, we are continuing on in our reform series. Uh, and in this series, we are looking at uh, the Methodist or Wesleyan movement uh, as a reformation movement, as a movement that was set out to reform the church. Uh, we are reading some of Wesley's core convictions for the launch of the Methodist movement, and we're reading scriptures that are related to those. Uh, and then we're asking ourselves these three questions as we go through the series. Uh, one, how might God be reforming the current United Methodist Church? How does God want to be a part of reforming this church? And, and how does God want to reform me? And so our Wesley reading this morning uh, comes from a book that John Wesley published uh, called Minutes of Several Conversations Between the Reverend John Wesley and Others. Uh, it's a collection of conversations that were held at some of the early conferences of the Methodist Church between John Wesley and his preachers. And after uh, his death in 1797, this publication was formalized as part of the connection-wide rules and legislation governing uh, Wesleyan Methodism, right? So this was an important part of the Methodist movement as it was being launched here in America. And so within this reading, there's this conversation that took place at a Methodist conference. And the question was asked of John Wesley, what may we reasonably believe to be God's design in raising up the preachers called Methodist? Basically, I mean, the, the, the preachers, those who are gathered there, uh, were kind of asking, why, why is God calling us? Like, what is, what is our mission? Why are we even launching this Methodist movement uh, and not just being a part of the Church of England like we've always been? And so Wesley responded to this question and he said, uh, to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. So when asked, what may we reasonably believe to be God's design in raising up the preachers called Methodist, Wesley said, to reform the nation, particularly the church, and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. And it's this idea of spreading scriptural holiness that gave the early Methodist movement its, its identity. It gave them a distinctive mission. And I would say that this mission of the Methodist movement is still a part of our call, a part of our DNA, a part of who we are. Uh, and following in Wesley's footsteps, following in the footsteps of Christ uh, as a people today. And so this morning, as we're exploring this holiness mission, uh, I first have to say this sermon uh, practically comes from what I consider to be the second best sermon that I've ever heard. Uh, it was preached by Miriam, uh, Miriam Swanson at the New Room Conference just a few years ago, and, and most of it is, uh, is, is stuff that she had written and put together, and it's just amazing. I was like, well, how can I, how can I change it? How can I edit it? And it's just, you, you can't. It was uh, laid out so well. And so... Uh, I do want to do want to give that to us. Our first scripture reading of this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25 through 37. I invite you to open your Bibles with me there. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25 through 37. Uh, in this uh, scripture passage, Jesus tells a parable, uh, a parable we often have heard as the parable of the good Samaritan. And so I invite us to hear together the word of the Lord. It was just then, a lawyer stood up to see Jesus, or to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? 
And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, ah, you've, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought, brought him to an end, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these, Jesus says, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Say thanks be to God. Now, at first reading, uh, we may not see much in the way that this passage relates to uh, the way that we are called to spread scriptural holiness. But if we think of this passage and how Jesus is using this story uh, to instruct his disciples in the way of holiness in contrast to the, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, uh, it might begin to make a little bit more sense. And so I'll start with this analogy. Uh, as Miriam Swanson was preaching on holiness and the mission of the church, uh, she brought up this interesting distinction between how we often think about holiness uh, and how Jesus lived out holiness. And so she said that most of the time, we tend to think about holiness as though it were uh, white jeans. We, we kind of relate it to white jeans. And most of us probably don't have white jeans much anymore because uh, it's really hard to wear them. Sorry, I, I see, James, you've got some white, you've got white pants on. Um, but when you have white pants on or white jeans, you, you've got to be careful, right? I mean, you've you got to watch out. You, you might spill something on them if you're writing with ink pen. You know, the pen can get on them. It, it, it can mess them up really quickly. If you wear them in public, it, it can tend to change your behavior a little bit. If you're standing out in the lobby uh, while people are drinking coffee, it's like, well, you got to be a little bit extra cautious. Somebody might uh, accidentally splash or spill something, and then it just kind of messes up your white jeans. Uh, if you're wearing white jeans, you're probably not around toddlers that often because there's just hand marks and, and everything else that they get into that's all it's all over them right if you wear white jeans uh, you tend to not be able to be around certain people eat certain things and go certain places because you have to keep your whites white right one one little mess up and the whole appearance is messed up and a lot of times our approach to holiness is that it's something that we don't want to mess up. Now, holiness is something that, that we have to do the work of to keep pure. And, and in Jesus' time, this was the, the way of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I mean, they took this command of God to be holy as I am holy seriously. Uh, and so they lived this call to be holy out by avoiding situations and avoiding people who might make them unclean. Uh, for, for them, uh, holiness 
needed to be separate, but it also needed to be seen. So they wouldn't be around you if they, if you might get them dirty. Right? They had to pay attention to who they sat with, who they touched, who they were near. Uh, this this whole attitude was, we are pure and holy, and you and you better not mess up me and my righteousness. And the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, the religious leaders, right? The, the priest and the Levite, they were wearing their holiness like a pair of white jeans. They see the man who's half dead on the side of the road, but they better not go near him. Because interacting with him could make them unclean. But what if there's a different way uh, that we can look at holiness? What if holiness isn't the white jeans? What if it's the bleach that makes them white in the first place? Uh, What if holiness is an offensive, transformative presence so that everything that it touches, it makes holy? Right, you have to, to lock your bleach away or put it up on a high shelf or put it somewhere where kids can't get to it for sure. But, but you have to put it away because it's dangerous. If you spill bleach on your blue jeans, you're in trouble. Because bleach changes everything that it touches. And if holiness is the bleaching agent that makes the jeans white in the first place, then the best way that bleach is used is to be poured out on the dirt. Jesus, he takes holiness seriously, just like the Pharisees take holiness seriously. But if holiness is the presence of God in him like a bleaching agent, Jesus makes it his mission to go and to sit in those places with those people, eating that food, uh, touching that body, getting involved in that situation where the Pharisees wouldn't dare to go because of their white jeans. And do we see how this might change kind of the picture, the, our understanding of holiness, the, the posture that we relate to others with as we think about holiness? You see, when the Holy Spirit is actually poured out within you, he changes things. Rather than making us more delicate and precious and keep to yourself, the Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us into agents of his transformation. This kind of idea of holiness begins to shape and change what it looks like for us to be the church. What it looks like for us to live, instead of in holy huddles, to live our lives poured out. It changes what it looks like for us to to think about discipleship. What it looks like for us to participate within mission. Rather than working to just appear holy and keep our white jeans white, we live our lives poured out, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to enter into everyday conversations and situations, the people who share God's grace, God's truth, God's love, God's mercy with the world around us. So invitations for us to love our neighbor become more like the Good Samaritan who walks across the road into a crime scene because you're not afraid. Because you know who lives within you. And so everything becomes an opportunity for us to shine the light of God. Now the transformative power of holiness uh, is something that we see all throughout scripture. It's not just a way for us to live, but it's something that God wants to do within us. And so we're going to turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. If you have yours with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 here uh, in Isaiah 6. 
And it says, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed. Your sin is blotted out. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am. Send me. Isaiah enters into the throne room of God. And he gets a glimpse of the power of the majesty of the reality of the presence of God. He, he sees the realness and the holiness of God. And Isaiah is terrified. He sees these seraphim flying around in humility. They're covering themselves, their faces, their feet, their bodies, as they're flying around the presence of God. And as they're flying around, they're proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah, in response to seeing the holiness of God, says, Woe is me. He's saying, Oh man, I'm not holy. Uh, You are God and I am not. You are holy and I am not. My my generation isn't holy. My people isn't holy. My nation is a mess. We've broken this thing. Woe to me because I have seen him and I can't unsee that. And now I don't know what to do with me. I think part of the, the, the painful, the challenging reality of holiness is that to encounter the holiness of God to also see our place. We get grounded in the humility of our humanity and we realize that God is God, that I am not. That, that God is holy and I am not. And, and I don't know that I can actually honestly be in God's presence. For some of us, that's, that's real right now. You have maybe a sense of conviction because you haven't been in the presence of Jesus in a while. Maybe there's some stuff that you haven't told anybody about and you know it's not okay and it's just weighing within your heart. Or maybe, maybe it's just that you're really uh, aware of how far that we have strayed from being a holy people. How we are a people of unclean lips, of how we have failed to be an obedient church, of how we have failed to love our neighbors. As we're reading in Isaiah, this extraordinary gospel moment happens in the midst of Isaiah's groundedness. uh, I am not holy. This extraordinary, just like Jesus moment happens where God comes all the way to him. 
This moment of provenient grace where the seraphim take a coal of fire from the altar and comes all the way to Isaiah where God says, you know what, you can't get here to me on your own. And so God goes all the way to him, touches him with holy fire and says, you are now clean. In my holiness, you are made holy. Because you know, it's not about earning our way to God. It's not about keeping our white jeans white so that we are good enough for God. It's that God reaches out in his grace and his mercy to us. God reaches out in his grace and his mercy and he refines Isaiah. He, he touches his mouth and he says, you are atoned for. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, that God comes all the way to us and reconciles us to his presence. And Isaiah experiences this heart surgery of holiness. It's painful, but it's healing you as well. It's making you well. It's healing you. It's setting you free. But it hurts as it heals because it's fire. And fire uh, the fire of God's presence, of his Holy Spirit at work within us will burn off all of the stuff that isn't holy as we stand in his presence. We're being made free and being made whole at the same time. And so now Isaiah has been atoned for, he's been touched by fire, and, and he hears the voice of God. His ears are now tuned to the voice of God. He's uh, he's been cleansed. And so his eyes are opened. His ears now hear. He hears God speaking with the angels. And God is saying, I've got this message. I want to send it to my people. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily a positive message. It's uh, about how most will die off and a remnant will survive. Um, does anybody have any suggestions about who who could go for us? And Isaiah, uh, being newly transformed by fire, eavesdropping on God, says, here I am, send me. See, this is a completely different person uh, than the Isaiah of just a minute ago who's like, ah, I've got unclean lips, I can't speak, I've just seen the king in a heartbeat uh, of being touched by the transformational power and presence of God, he now says, here I am, send me. Isaiah, here's the call to reform the nation, particularly the church, to spread scriptural holiness across the land. And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. This is the same kind of holiness that Jesus lived out in his ministry, the same kind of holiness that we are called to live out as the church, to encounter the power and the presence of God, to be shaped and transformed by that encounter with his holiness, and then to be poured out for the others around us. See, this is the way that Jesus operated within his ministry. Jesus was all about holiness. It's not something that got left behind. This command that God gives to be holy as I am holy isn't something that the kind of the New Testament just said, ah, we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not something that the church has said, ah, you know, the whole holiness isn't really it anymore. It's still the call that we have. Jesus understood the assignment that was given to him. God hasn't retracted the call to be holy. Jesus knew it was a thing. The Pharisees knew it was a thing. But it's just how we go about it. Right? Either keeping the white jeans white or being poured out like bleach where it's dirty. So we're going to look real quick at a story in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Jesus has just done something outrageous. Uh, it's, 
outrageous for the Pharisees and for those who are gathered around. It's less outrageous if you realize that holiness is supposed to be transformative. And so Jesus has just healed a paralyzed man. Uh, he forgave his sins first. And so this kind of drew some criticism and critique. Uh, he claimed to be God. He touched somebody who was obviously unclean. And so the Pharisees are annoyed. Uh, the disciples at this point are probably having a bit of a nightmare. Like, what are we going to do with this? Jesus, what is he going to do next? Come on, Jesus, let's get out of here. Let's just go get some food. Uh, and, and so uh, they're walking along and Jesus sees Matthew, a tax collector, and he calls out to him. The disciples are probably putting their head down like, what is going on now? But is it this, isn't this like Jesus, right? To go after the thing that needs the most bleach. See, Matthew, he's, he's unpopular. Matthew is corrupt. He's colluding with the enemy. But Jesus sees Matthew. God comes all the way to the one who is least holy and he says, come and follow me. And of course, when God comes close, Matthew says, well, I want to come closer too." Matthew's response is this already ongoing work of grace, the already ongoing work of the transformation that takes place when we encounter God's holiness. Because it's not like Matthew is good enough. It's not like Matthew expected this to take place. It wasn't like Matthew was even trying. He was sitting there minding his own business. Involved in his own thing, his own way, his own life, Jesus shows up. He says, come, follow me, come. Let me make you holy as I am holy. When God comes close, Matthew responds to the invitation with a yes. So Jesus goes over to Matthew's house for dinner. And the disciples are probably thinking it can't get much worse than this because dinner is a big deal within that culture. If a rabbi is having dinner, it's something that's prophetic. Whoever a rabbi, a teacher is sitting with to eat dinner with is prophetic about who they think is welcome in the kingdom of heaven, who's welcome at the heavenly banquet. And Jesus is sitting and he's eating dinner with sinners and tax collectors all the time. And it's, it's no wonder that the Pharisees are annoyed. Uh, it's not just about what they're eating. It's like the whole point of holiness is to keep you clean so that you can get into heaven. And Jesus is doing just the opposite. He's going into the places with people who would be unclean. He's sitting with sinners and tax collectors. But all of this is electric with holiness. Because whole loads of people who would never show up at our church luncheon are wanting to sit with Jesus because he's extraordinary. And the power and the presence of God is literally changing lives. It's no wonder that people are annoyed with Jesus. If, if holiness is something to be uh, kept separate, to be kept clean, if it's, if it's rules-based, if it's fearful... No wonder they're, no wonder they're confused by Jesus, the disarming presence of God that looks at women and children, at the, at the dying and the dead, at the diseased and the lonely, the homeless and the rejected, the corrupt and the rich and the poor and people from every tribe and tongue, including his enemies. And he says, I'm going to have dinner at your house. I'll sit at the table with you. Because that shouts the invitation of God, the welcome of the Father, the, the presence of God who is not intimidated by sin, 
who's not uh, intimidated by, by how unreached or how far away you seem because this is the God who comes all the way to us. That in his holiness, as he pours out his presence, people are transformed. They don't feel shame. They get free. This is holiness. God and his power and his majesty comes to us, offers him, offers us himself. He says, let me make you whole. Let me make you clean. Let me fill you with my power and my presence. Not so that you could just kind of stay to yourself. Not so that you live in concern, but so you can live your life poured out for the sake of others. I wonder this morning if this isn't what it should look like for us to be the church. Right, we, we gathered to be scattered out into the world as an invitation for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Right, to have our own experience like Isaiah, like Matthew, where we encounter the fullness of the presence and the power of God. Then we say, here I am, Lord, send me to, to lay down our fears, to put down our guard. To understand the transformative power and presence of God in you is enough. If you believe what scripture says, it's enough. That he is fire. That he lives in you. He's the one who touches and changes and transforms. And there's an open invitation from God for us to come close. For us to experience that transformation within our own lives. And for us to, to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. To hear that call. To reform the nation. Particularly the church. To spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. And to say, here I am, Lord. Send me.